following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. I invite you to take God's word and open up with me, please, to the Old Testament book of Psalms and make your way to chapter 119. Psalm 119. There's a few Sundays that preachers like me especially enjoy uh, because I get to go against what the world's doing. And so as the world is celebrating on Christmas, Christmas trees and presents, I get to tell you of the real meaning of the season. Another one of those Sundays is New Year's, at least the first Sunday in the new year. That's because the world is rushing to and fro in order to uh, hold fast to this resolution or to get right in this area of their lives. And there's a lot of purchases that happen in this time of the year, right? Home gyms and uh, gym memberships, and they usually last about a month and a half, two months, and they go back to their lives. And we don't want to get caught up, as Christian said earlier, in the feudal ways of this world. We have one resolution, and that's according to uh, the, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we make it our aim to please him. That's every day of our lives. That's not just in the coming year. There's no magical reset that comes with the new year. That's fairy tale. That's the ways of the world. There, there's no reset that comes. The reset that we find is in the blood of Christ. And that's at all times. Scripture says that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. As we walk in the light, live in the light, fellowship with God in the light every day, we remain and abide under the cleansing flow of his blood at all times. That's our reset. That's our newness of life. That's our refreshment. And so today, my goal is to stir up your hearts and your minds to be a people who are absolutely absorbed in the word of God. I don't think it's an overstatement or an exaggeration to say that if you're single, this is your greatest need. If you're married, this is your greatest need. If you're a parent, parent of young ones at home or a parent of older children that are out of the house, this is your greatest need. Whether you're young or old, whether you're new in the faith or you've walked with Christ for many years by the grace of God, no matter where you are at today, all of us stand in need of an ever-deepening devotion to the Word of God and to the God of the Word. In fact, I would venture to guess that no one in this room today would say that they're exactly where they long to be with regard to their devotion and their dedication to God's Word. To be absolutely transparent and honest with you, even I, as a pastor, and perhaps especially as a bivocational pastor who works 40 hours a week in a completely different line of work, 
Even I am nowhere near where I want to be and long to be with regard to my life being completely absorbed in the word of God. You might say, but your whole week is revolving around the study of God's word in order to preach the word. So how can you not be absorbed in the word? But you need to know that there's a difference between abiding in the word in order to preach it and abiding in the word because it really is your bread and your water, your life, your joy, your strength, and your light. There's a big difference. There's a difference between reading the Bible with your work boots on and then reading it even when the work boots are left at the door. There's a difference. The people of God have always been commanded in, in, in Scripture to abide in God's word from the very beginning. When God assembled the people made them a nation, entered into covenant with them, began to give them his laws. He said to them in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And a lot of people take that out of context and we say that's the extent of what we're called to do, to just love him. From the heart, with our soul and our strength. But he clarifies what he means by that. He says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So we're called to love the Lord with all of our heart, but in the context of his word being on the heart. He says, you shall teach these words diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. That's a life absorbed in the word of Yahweh. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. In other words, this is to be the reality that you live and breathe in. The revealed will, the special revelation of Almighty God, the Word of God. Even after Deuteronomy, as we progress in the story, as God is preparing his people to enter into the promised land, we read in Joshua chapter 1, verse 7, Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. That was the word of God at the time, the law of Moses, the Mosaic covenant, that body of text that, uh, of, of ordinances and rules and regulations. That was their revealed scripture in, the, in that day. He says, Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. That's what he says to the generation entering into the promised land. As we go further into the story, Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 5, the writer tells the, the reader, get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. The people of God have always been commanded to hold fast to God's revealed word. Proverbs 5, 7. And now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. In the context of keeping this young man away from this forbidden woman, Proverbs chapter 7, we read, My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers and write them on the tablet of your heart. And then as we cross over into the New Testament, Jesus, we see him tempted in the wilderness by the devil. And at one point, he answers the devil saying, it is written, 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus tells us that we live by every one of God's words. Everyone that comes from the mouth of God. And we're told in Paul's letter to Timothy, Scripture is this word. It's this word that's been breathed out of God. John 15, verse 4, we have this classic text where Jesus says to his disciples, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And then he would go on just a few verses later to clarify what it means to abide in him. Because we could easily take that text and walk away with some form of mysticism and, you know, trying to figure out how to abide mystically in him. No, it's, there's no mysticism here. He says in verse 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So to abide in Christ is to abide in his word and to have his words abiding in us. And Paul would say to the Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. You can't do that if the word's not abiding in you. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The word of God richly abiding in us is what produces authentic and lasting gratitude in the heart of the believer. The Apostle John in his first epistle encourages us to walk in the light. And as you make your way through the letter, it becomes increasingly evident that to walk in the light as God is in the light is to walk in the truth, to walk in the word. First John chapter 1 verse 10, his word is to be in us. 1 John 2, 5, we are to keep his word. 1 John 2, 14, he says, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you've overcome the evil one. So to walk in the light, according to the apostle John, is to walk in the light of God's revelation, his word. That's what it means to walk in the light. Well, in his second letter, John expressed his joy because he found believers, quote, walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. The Apostle Paul said to the believers in Thessalonica, finally, brothers, we ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. And now listen to what he says. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. In 1 Thessalonians 4.3, he goes on and says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Did you catch that? This is the will of God, your sanctification. God's will for all of his people at every stage in their pilgrimage to heaven is that they walk in holiness. That's the meaning of the word sanctification. It means to walk in a manner that's different from the ways of this world. We need to hear that again and again. 
This is the will of God for our lives, our sanctification, our consecration, our separation from this world, our living in this world, but our not being of this world. That is sanctification. It means to live in a way that shows both publicly and privately that you have been set apart by the grace of God and for the glory of God. You're one who has been set apart for him. To be holy is to walk in a manner that shows that your life is no longer your life. It is his life. That your will is no longer the decisive, determining factor of your life, but that God's will is the very thing to which your will surrenders to and revolves around. That is sanctification. In short, sanctification is the process of becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what sanctification is. That's what holiness is. It's conformity to Christ. The entire Christian ministry consisting of pastors and preachers and shepherds and teachers and also faithful members who are intentionally pouring into the lives of one another. The entire Christian ministry centers around building up a people who are sanctified and conformed to the image and likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul the Apostle said in the fourth chapter of his letter to the Ephesians. He says that Christ gave the apostles, he gave the prophets, he gave the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to entertain the sheep, to tickle their ears, to satisfy their carnal appetites, to make them feel good about themselves. No, he says he gave these individuals, the head of the church, Jesus Christ, gave these individuals to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until, here's a goal, here's what we're to do, but here's the goal, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. That's the goal of all faithful, biblical Christian ministry, is Christian maturity. Growing up in every way into him who is the head. Friends, that is sanctification. That is maturity. That is holiness. And that is God's will for every one of his people at every stage and every season of the Christian life. So often believers get tangled up in trying to figure out God's will for their lives. I think when I was a young Christian, I, I felt for so long that I missed the bus of the will of God. And it was miles down the road. 
But we get caught up in trying to discern God's will for our lives when he has already expressed in very clear language what his will is. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Well, the night before his crucifixion, our Lord Jesus was preparing to lay down his life as a ransom for his people, and he prayed these words to his father, and the apostle John recorded them for us. John 17, beginning in verse 14. He says to his father, I have given them, speaking of his disciples and that first generation of believers, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And in verse 17, he says this, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's the prayer. In fact, I would say that captures the entire prayer of John 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So if God's will, follow me here, is our sanctification, and the means by which he sanctifies us is the truth, and the embodiment of the truth is his word, it follows that we must be men and women, boys and girls, who are increasingly devoted to and absolutely absorbed in the word of God. Well, to stir up your heart and your mind this morning to this end, I want to direct your attention to the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119. Obviously, I don't have the ability to unpack all 176 verses of this psalm, but as I lingered over this chapter and over each stanza, it was the second one, verses 9 through 16, that stood out to me anyways as the one that points us to revolve our lives around the word of God, the strongest, especially as it relates to God's word abiding in our hearts. And so as always, it's with a sobering sense of unworthiness and privilege and honor that I invite you to hear and heed the life-imparting, faith-sustaining, mind-renewing, heart-inflaming words of our triune God. Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Grace community, this is the word of the living God. Thanks be to God. If we are called to be sanctified and set apart. We are called to pursue holiness, the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, Hebrews 12, 14. 
that can only happen by a life absorbed in the word of God. And what I love about this particular stanza, bet, B-E-T-H, um, is it captures the entire Christian life, if you think about it. First of all, this psalm of all the psalms is a psalm celebrating and rejoicing in the sufficiency and the authority of God's word. 176 verses about the greatness of God's word, how it keeps us, how it revives us, how it warns us, how it strengthens us, how it comforts us in times of affliction. We have this word that does everything it needs to. You got a broken person over here, the word is sufficient to heal them. You have a lost person over there, the word is sufficient to bring them into the fold of Christ. You have a person rejoicing over there in that corner, and the word is sufficient to sustain their joy. Everything you need is found in this all-sufficient word of the living God. Friends, I don't know if you realize how privileged we are in the West to have these Bibles in page, on our phones, on our iPads, on our computers, everywhere. We have it everywhere. This is not a, a common thing. It's a privilege that we would even have these and have multiple translations and have it in multiple formats. Leather and this color and that color. But do we have it in here? Do we delight in it in here? I will rejoice in your word as one who finds great spoil, the writer said. Do we rejoice in the word in that way? What if, what if we were like that first generation of believers who didn't have a Bible? In fact, many, many years, hundreds of years, Christians after the coming of Christ, they didn't have Bibles like we have. They had the gospel. Certainly there were manuscripts out and about, but not every Christian had access to them. How would we be sustained? How would we live? This stanza, Beth, encaptures the entire Christian life. You want to pursue purity? Here's the answer. You want to know what it means to seek God? Here's the answer. You want to be kept from wandering? Here's the answer. You want to be kept from sin? All sin? Sinning in thought, in word, and in action? Here's the answer. You want to know what it means to authentically from the heart praise God? Here's the answer. You want to know what to do with your lips that you've been given? Here's the answer. Verse 13. You want to know what you're to delight in? Here's the answer. You want to know what is to be your meditation all the day? Here's the answer. You want to fixate your eyes and your minds on something, something substantial, something glorious, something weighty, something of eternal significance? Here's the answer. You want to know something you should never forget? Here's the answer. What I love about this psalm is that it captures everything from prayer to meditation to what you delight in, what you purpose to do. It's all here. This really does capture the entire Christian journey. And so I want to just go verse by verse through this text. Let's consider, first of all, the pursuit of purity. Verse 9. He asks, how can a young man keep his way 
his path, his road, pure. I love this because it rightly understands and conveys the message that the Christian journey is a path. It's a journey. As Peter says, you are sojourners and exiles. You are making your way, to use the language of Hebrews chapter 11, you are making your way to a better country, a city whose maker and builder is God. We follow that long line of patriarchs throughout the Old Testament and prophets as we by faith journey to the celestial city. And on this path, there are many dangers. And John Bunyan, the writer of the Pilgrim's Progress, I think captures this very well. This journey takes us through dark seasons. It takes us to high places. It takes us through times of attack and times of bliss, times of despair and times of delight. We're on this path. And the question that we need to ask is, as we're on this path, whether we're young or old, how do we keep this path pure, free from obstruction, free from distractions, free from anything that would take us off the path? Much of our thinking today, when we think purity, we think only in terms of sexual purity. How can I remain sexually pure physically and emotionally and internally? But in this day, purity spoke of a life marked by one thing, one substance. I've often alluded to this in preaching in the past, that to be pure is to not have anything but that one substance in it. I don't know what all this has in it. I'm sure it's not completely pure water. There's probably something added to it. Even stuff with natural flavors, as my wife has educated me, is not really pure. There's additives. But to pursue purity is to pursue one thing. This one thing, as David said in Psalm 27, I have asked for. That's to just inquire in his temple, to be there with him, to behold his beauty. That's, that's a life of purity. One pursuit. Paul said, we make it our aim to please him. That's a pure life. Simply put, purity and what purity looks like is if we were to spiritually cut you open, if you were of one substance, and that substance was, I make it my aim to please him, whether in life or death, my aim is to exalt him. If that's what we could look into your life and find, then we would say that's a pure life. Now, we're not talking about a perfect life because we know as long as we're in these earthly bodies, we have the remnants of indwelling sin. And we would never, ever from this pulpit ever preach that you can attain a sense of perfection or a form of perfection in this life. You won't. Even in those high valleys of feeling like sin has no dominion over you, because you're no longer under law, but under grace, you still have to walk through the reality of Romans chapter 7, where you find yourself groaning with the Apostle Paul at the reality that you, behind it all, groan and say, wretched man, wretched woman that I am, who will deliver me? Who will deliver me from the body of this death? And then wonderfully, in God's grace, you will be taken into the valley of Romans chapter 8, that lush valley where there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, where you have the spirit of life in you, 
teaching you, instructing you, leading you in the assurance that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion when you are glorified after having been predestined and foreknown and called and justified. You will be glorified. But in the meantime, we have these earthly carcasses that have their fallen desires still. But we have the word of God in order to help keep this way pure. How can a young man keep his way pure? No doubt he's probably referring to the young man that is being addressed in the Proverbs. My son, my son, my son, my young son. How can a young man keep his way pure? Notice the answer. By guarding this path, by guarding the way according to your word. It says in Psalm 19 that by your word, your servant is warned. Thank God that God warns us. I thank God for all the warning passages in the Bible. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. If we go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, and we do so willingly, we read in Hebrews that there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. If we go on willingly, Pursuing a life of sin without repentance, without genuine change, we should fear. We should be very afraid because we are deceived. If you are in hidden sin even today and you are comfortable in it, you should fear. You are in grave danger. If you think that you can call yourself a believer and still live without repentance, without fruit flowing from that repentance... In any form of sin, in thought, word, or deed, whatever it might be, by definition of Scripture, you are deceived. Meaning, you think you're headed one way, but you're heading in an entirely different direction. You're blinded. To use the language of the Apostle John, he who hates his brother is still in the darkness. And the same can be true of every unrepentant sin. If you're in any unrepentant sin, you're still in the darkness, but you think you're in the light. How can a young man keep his way pure of one substance without obstruction? By guarding it according to your word. The word tells us what we're to pursue. The word tells us what the dangers are. The word tells us that there's dangers within, called the flesh, called the old man, the old woman. The word tells us that there are also dangers without. There is a world that wants to occupy our thinking there was a world, and there was a God of this world, lowercase g, that uses this world to get into our minds, to get into the way we think, to redefine beauty, to redefine God, to redefine truth, to question truth. There, there's so much in this world that is geared towards detaching the believer from his or her Christ. It wants to detach us. It wants to wean us from him. And to draw us to the world again. Commercials are designed to do that. Everything in this world, I, I think we overlook it so much, is geared to lead us away from the truth and away from the light. How can a young man, but how can an old man? How can a young woman, how can an old woman keep? I love that word. Not make. Because God is the only one who ultimately makes us pure. But how can we keep it pure? 
How can we maintain that life of purity by guarding it according to your word? To set safeguards around that path. To set a a barbed wire fence, so to speak, around that path. And what is that fence? It's the light of God's word. It's the promises of the word. It's the hope that comes from the testimonies in the word of God. Well, notice as we progress into verse 10, he says, with my whole heart, I seek you. With everything that's within me, I seek you. That means I desire to be with you. I desire to know you. I desire to be found walking in the light as you are in the light. I pursue you. I follow you. I search for you. But how does he do that? Again, this isn't a call to mysticism. We're trying to follow God without any kind of objective truth. The objective truth comes in the second line in verse 10. Let me not wander from your commandments. So the truth of God's word keeps the young man's path pure. It keeps the old man's path pure. It keeps our lives pure. As we heed its warnings, as we delight in its promises, as we follow its precepts, and as we seek him, we find ourselves praying. By the way, what I love about Psalm 119 is it's not just 176 verses about the beauty, sufficiency, authority, clarity, usefulness of God's word, but it's also instructive in the realm of prayer. This psalm is a prayer. He's praying to God. The word of God is richly abiding in this individual, and what does it do? It produces a life of dependency, a life of prayerful dependence. That's how you know God's word is bearing fruit in your life, by the way, is if you are moved to pray. Pray publicly with others and privately when no one's around. To pray in seasons of of focus and to pray in seasons of driving to work or walking down the hall or in an intense moment of conflict. It's a life of constant prayer. That's what the word of God produces in the lives of his people is prayerfulness, dependence, humility. And that's what this is. With my whole heart, Everything within me, I seek you. See, that's the definition of purity from verse 9. My way is pure because my whole heart is seeking you. Not just certain aspects of my life, but my whole heart seeks you, pursues you. And the prayer is issued forth. Let me not wander from your commandments. That's the prayer. If we are to live absorbed in the word of God... We are to pray, let me not wander from your commandments. Jesus said something similar, something very instructive in the Lord's Prayer. His version of let me not wander from your commandments is lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. Isn't it sad that even as justified believers, predestined believers, chosen believers, Sealed believers, those who have the first fruits of the Spirit, those who have the Spirit of God. We have to pray that we would not wander from His commandments, from His Word. I'm thankful that God justifies the ungodly. Thankful that He gives us hope in the glory of God. But it's so sad to me still that this, that there's something within me that 
like gravity, wants to come back down to the ways of this world. And hence the reason we need to pray, let me not wander, because our hearts are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. You need to realize that. If you have any flawed view of sanctification, you will be led down a very, very dangerous path. Among whatever views you hold with regard to sanctification, one of those views should be this. You are still prone to wander. Prone to leave the God that you love. And knowing that will lead you to pursue the word of God in a greater degree. Knowing that you are prone to wander will provoke you to pray prayers like this. Let me not wander. The word means to stray from your commandments. By the way, straying and wandering is something very easy to do. In fact, you don't have to do anything and you'll coast, you'll wander. Just stop praying, stop seeking, stop fellowshipping with the church, stop being intentional with your time and you'll wander. It's just a given. It's just the way it happens. Let me not wander, he says, from your commandments. Look at verse 11 now. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Notice how these verses are all connected, by the way, and not surprisingly, because this is the God-breathed words of God, the Spirit-breathed words of God. He's talking about purity of heart in verse 9. He clarifies that purity in verse 10 by saying, that his whole heart seeks God. And how is he seeking God? Look at verse 11. I have stored up, some of your translations might say, I have treasured up your word in my heart. In the Old Testament, this word is used of a treasury, of treasuring things up, of taking precious things and hiding them within the treasury. See, we treasure things that are precious to us. We hide things that are valuable to us. That's why we have safes today, and that's why we have locks on our doors, and that's why we have means of protecting the valuables, right? In the psalmist's mind, there's one thing that needs to be stored away deep within the heart, hidden there, locked there. It's the word. Your word have I stored up in my heart. I've hidden it there. I've taken time to remember it. I've taken time to memorize it. I've taken time to meditate upon it so that when I'm in danger, I can recall it quickly and wield that sword and fight. And fight. I've stored up your word in my heart for the purpose of that I might not sin against you. The Apostle John said something very similar. He says, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. But I'm writing still that you don't sin. That's the comfort, right? Perfectionism would say, I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin. And then he'd move on. Biblical balance and truth says, I write these things to you so that you don't sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. The the Bible always ends with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That I might not sin against you. You see, the Bible and saturating yourself in the Bible will keep you from sin. But on the other hand, sin will keep you from being saturated in the Bible. 
Well, he goes on and he says, blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. I love these periodic, sporadic outbursts of praise that we read of in this psalm where he's praying and he's meditating upon the word and just out of nowhere, he praises God. That's exactly how the Christian life is. As we're growing and as we're studying and as we're depositing God's word in our hearts, we find authentic praise and genuine worship welling up in our hearts. This is, by the way, the means to any God-pleasing praise is it stems from and it's rooted in devotion to the word of God. Because you can't worship any higher than your devotion to the word of God. You can't worship what you don't know. We worship, Jesus says, what we know. Worship and knowledge go hand in hand. If your knowledge is, 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 is not very high, if, you're, if you don't have a knowledge of God, you're not going to worship God the way you should worship God. Worship arises out of the knowledge of the word. And so he says, blessed are you, O Yahweh. Praised are you. Adored are you, O Lord. And then he says, teach me your statutes. In the context of praise, there's still a willingness to be taught, a willingness to be instructed. Teach me your statutes. This, this tells us here that our knowledge has to go beyond a surface knowledge of just looking at the statutes, looking at the words, looking at the commandments. There has to be a penetrating aspect where we are actually taught these things. We know them and can recite them back to others. We know them and can recite them back to God in prayer. We know them and we can recite them when we're sharing the gospel. Teach me your statutes, he says. I don't just want to know them on a surface level. I want my heart to be taught. I want my heart to be instructed. I want my heart to actually know these things so that I can teach my children these things, so I can encourage others with these things. So the Christian life, we see it going from a path, the pursuit of purity, being guarded with the word. We see a wholehearted seeking of God. We see prayer arising to not be straying from the commandments. We see the Christian life in verse 11 being that of storing up God's word in the heart that we might not sin. We see God's word in verse 12 provoking praise causing worship to erupt from our lives. But then there's another aspect of the Christian life that the word of God creates, and that's in verse 13, the aspect of proclamation or declaration. Notice verse 13. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. You see, a life absorbed in the word of God will naturally and should naturally produce a life of proclamation, a life of declaration. Not all of you are called to be public speakers, and I would never want to put that on your conscience or lay that burden upon you. However, all of you are called, if you're in Christ, to open your mouths for the sake of Christ. All of you are called, in one way or another, to speak forth the riches of Christ to others. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. It's really, you know, the, 
the reality of what Jeremiah experienced. He says, your words were in my heart like a fire in my bones and I couldn't hold it back. I couldn't hold them back. I couldn't hold them in. And though we can't identify that with that in, in a sense that we are prophets or prophetesses with, with, with Jeremiah, the word has that effect upon us. How can you abide in the word and experience the joy and the praise and the prayer that the word incites and encourages and not say anything to anyone ever? You see, that's a deficient Christian, a Christian who says nothing to others. That's a deficient faith. I'm not saying it's a damning faith that'll take your soul to hell, but there's something wrong there. If you can store up the word, you can praise God, you can pray, and you can pursue purity, and you can guard your way according to the word, and yet never say anything to anyone? Even if it's your family, your children, your co-workers, fellow students, anyone... He says, with my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. In other words, what God desires, what God forbids, what God prohibits. I love the consistency, by the way, of Scripture's own testimony regarding itself, that his words are the words of his mouth. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out. By God, the rules of your mouth. Notice how everything in this psalm is about the word. Verse 9, your word. Verse 10, your commandments. Verse 11, your word. Verse 12, your statutes. Verse 13, your, the, the rules of your mouth. Verse 14, your testimonies. Verse 15, your precepts, your ways. Verse 16, your statutes. Verse 16, again, your word. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. That's what the word of God abiding in us should and will produce. His declaration, a life of proclamation. Verse 14. The word also regulates what we delight in. Notice verse 14. In the way of your testimonies, or in the path of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all Riches. I love this. In the way of your testimonies, what we have in the scriptures are God's testimonies. In other words, God testifying of who he is, who we are, what he has done, and how we're to respond. We often, in our day, we make much of our testimonies of conversion. We'll say things like, can you share your testimony? What do they mean by that? Well, can you share how you came to know Christ and how Christ came to bring you out of darkness into light? And it's glorious. We should hear testimonies. We heard, we've heard several testimonies this past year um, of people being baptized. You share a testimony. You, tell, you testify of what has happened. Well, in the scriptures, God testifies. He testifies to what reality is. He testifies to the origins of the universe. He testifies of reality, absolute reality. God gives us his testimony. What we have in the word are works and words. Let me clarify that. What we have in the Bible 
is God's works, the record of God's works, what he has done in creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He spoke, he spoke, he spoke, and it happened, and it happened, and it happened. Those are his works, his works of creation, his works of providence, the fact that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He clothes the lilies of the field. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and on the just. Those are his works. Those are things that he does. He brought his people out of the land of Egypt. Those are his works. He promised it, and then he accomplished it. But then what we have is not just his works, but then his words that interpret those works. And we need that aspect. Otherwise, if we don't have the word of interpretation of what's happening in the Bible, we see, wow, a Red Sea split. And people walked through it. And the people pursuing them died. But then we have the interpretive aspect of the word of God saying, God promised to do this as a type and a shadow of the great exodus that is to come in the Lord Jesus Christ. That in our ultimate and final Passover lamb, who will be slaughtered for us, the angel of death will pass over us and we will be brought into the promised land of the new creation. It was all a type and a shadow of what was to come. But we wouldn't know that without the interpretive word, the interpretive aspect of the word of God. If all we had was the works recorded for us, that Jesus was crucified for us, without the word of interpretation, of explanation, we'd be left with an extraordinary sad story of this nice man who went around healing. And teaching great things about the kingdom of God. And then they killed him. And then he rose again, but we don't know what his resurrection means. We don't know what his crucifixion means. The interpretive aspect of the word is absolutely necessary to interpret the works of God. And that's what we have in the Bible are his works and his words interpreting the works. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight. Your testimonies are those realities where God interprets his works, where he interprets history, where he interprets his doings. I delight in these things, he says, as much as in all riches, as much as in all riches. This is what a life absorbed in the word of God will produce, is delight in God. We've seen a lot of fruit already and what it means to be a Christian in this psalm alone. It's the pursuit of purity, it's to be absorbed in the word of God. It's to wholeheartedly seek God. It's to pray, to not wander from God. A Christian is one who treasures the word in the heart because it's most precious to him or her. A Christian desires not to sin, verse 11. A Christian says, I don't want to sin. I thank God that there's a propitiation. I thank God that we have a high priest. I thank God that we have a sacrifice that covers our sins, but I don't want to sin. That's the prayer, verse 11. A Christian is one who erupts in praise to God, verse 12. A Christian is one who, verse 13, declares what God has said. And a Christian, verse 14, is one who delights in God's testimonies regarding reality, regarding his works, regarding history, regarding himself. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Notice verse 15. Verses 15 and 16 end with really resolutions. 
not just for the new year, but at all times. He says, I will meditate on your precepts, your instructions. I will think them through. I will let them soak within me. I will soak in them. I will chew on them. I will derive all the nutrients out of them the way animals do when they chew the grass. I will meditate on your precepts and I will fix my eyes on your ways. He's obviously speaking internally, the eyes of his heart. Paul prayed that the eyes of the Ephesians' hearts would be enlightened. This is the same thing, that the eyes of our hearts would be fixed on God's ways. The ways in which he works, the ways in which he saves, the ways in which he sanctifies and strengthens and stabilizes his people and builds his church through the preaching and proclamation of the word of God as the people of God walk in the spirit of God and in the fear of God. I will fix my eyes on your ways. This is really the same thing as Paul saying to the Colossians in chapter 3 of his letter to them. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. Set your mind on things above where Christ is. Set your mind on his ways. The world makes it so that meditation on the things of God is extremely difficult. And that's designed. That's intentional. That's not just, oh, it happens to be that the world is a very distracting place. No, that's intentional. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 says that we are of God and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. I wonder if we've ever truly meditated upon that reality. We, John says, are of God. We've been born of God because we've been predestined by God. We've been chosen by God. We've been justified by God. We've been filled with the Spirit of God. We're united to Christ, the Son of God. We are of God. But the whole world lies under the sway, the influence, the power of the evil one. Meaning, those who are not chosen, those who are not predestined, those who are not justified and called and walking and filled with the Spirit of God, while they may not be immediately possessed by demonic powers, they are still under the influence of the Spirit of this world. That's the truth of Ephesians chapter 2. We all once walked according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Again, it's not talking about firsthand demonic oppression, but the reality is, is if you're not in Christ, the spirit of disobedience, the spirit of the enemy is at work in you. That's why it's hard to meditate upon God's precepts. But the purpose, the resolution is there. I will meditate on your precepts. I will take time to think these things through. I will be intentional with my time. I will be careful to obey his commands. I will be careful to guard what I allow to occupy my mind. How is your relationship with media today? How is your relationship with television? How is your relationship with your iPad and your iPhone? Is that a tool that's helping you to live in the reality of Beth? Verses 9 through 16? Or is it more of a distraction? 
At times, for me, it's a distraction. It's not enhancing my Christian life in any way. But these things that were given to us, they're given to us for our good. We're to steward these things well. There are tools on your iPhone to help you memorize Scripture, to help you think on things above, to help you fix your eyes on His ways. And verse 16 closes. He says, I will delight in your statutes. This whole life is a delight battle. The world is holding out a plethora of delights and says, come and enjoy and eat while hiding the bait, while hiding the hook underneath the bait, the hook that leads you away, the hook that leads you and lures you towards more and more godlessness. Where God says, you'll live, truly live, truly flourish, truly abound in joy when you live by my words. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. There's a lot of things in this life that we should forget and try to forget and pray to forget. But there's one thing that we should never forget, and that's what God has said. That's what God has taught us in his word. There's a purpose here. I will meditate. I will delight. I will not forget your word. Hence, one of the reasons we as a church will be seeking to store up God's word in our hearts each week as we make our way through these fighter verses. Set one. I think you've got the... If you don't have any, you can get with me after I can send you more. Um, But this is what it means to live a life absorbed in the word. The word of God is sufficient to convert the soul. Psalm 19.7. The word of God makes the simple wise. It takes simple people and gives them wisdom from above. Wisdom from heaven. That's one of the things I love about the word is that it makes the simple wise. It teaches you how to apply knowledge. It doesn't just set forth knowledge and say, here, eat it up. It also instructs you on how and when to apply that knowledge to different situations and scenarios in your life. That's wisdom. Psalm 19.8, it rejoices our heart. Are you in need of joy? Are you finding yourself increasingly depressed and discouraged? Well, there's something for that heart. And Psalm 19 says it's the word of God that's able to rejoice the heart. Psalm 19.8 also says that it enlightens the eyes. Are you not seeing reality clearly? Are you not seeing your situation clearly? Are you not seeing your responsibility as a husband clearly? Are you not seeing where your family is headed? It's dark. It's gloomy. Well, guess what? Psalm 19.8 says the word of God enlightens the eyes. The word of God endures forever. Psalm 119 verse 9, it keeps our ways pure. It keeps us from sin, verse 11. It revives us, Psalm 119 verse 25. When we are feeling like we're in the dust, when we're feeling like we just have no spiritual life or vigor. What do you do with that? What do you do when as a Christian you just feel lifeless? I know I'm not the only one that experiences those seasons of dryness and drought and darkness. 
word tells us in Psalm 119, verse 25, that it's the word that revives us. The word that injects us with life. It strengthens us. It's a lamp to our feet and it's a light to our path. It gives us life. It sustains our spiritual life. It, Psalm 119, verse 130, it imparts light and it imparts understanding to the simple. It's hated by Satan, feared by Satan, Mark 4, 15. The word of God will never pass away, Mark 13, 31. It's our means of sanctification. Jeremiah likens it to a fire. Your word is like a fire, Jeremiah 23, 29. It's like a hammer that shatters the rocks in pieces. God says, it's not my word like fire and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. It's like a sword that cuts and pierces hearts, Acts 2.37. This same word is sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. It nourishes us as rain and snow nourishes the earth, Psalm Isaiah 55.11. It accomplishes God's purposes and it succeeds in the things for which he sends it. This word that we have in our possession is living and it's active. And all you need to do is let it out. Let it loose. Let it in. Abide in it. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Sometimes when we cannot discern our ways, our errors, all we need to do is go to the word and it's able as the Spirit takes it and applies it to our lives, it's able to discern the very thoughts, motives, and intentions of the heart and lead us on the narrow path again. It's the sword of the Spirit. Acts 20, verse 32 says that this same word builds us up and gives us the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. It's at work in genuine believers. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, it's at work. It's never inactive. It's always working. It's the instrument by which the Spirit of God regenerates dead sinners, James 1.18. It brings life to the dead and hopeless, Ezekiel 37. It gives us victory over the evil one. This same word equips the saints for the work of ministry. You don't need modern-day Christian philosophers telling you how to have a successful ministry. You need to know your Bible better. That's what you need. It builds up the body of Christ. It matures the Christian. It establishes the Christian. It has effectively cleansed us like water. It heals us and it delivers us from destruction. Psalm 107, verse 20. It's able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. As I read all of these passages, it's like, what do you need? And the word is there for you. What do you need? And the word can do it. What do you need? And the word will meet that need. It completes the people of God. It equips us for every good work. It's what we're to live by. It's what we're to hang upon. Luke 19, verse 48. It's to be received. It's to be trembled at. Isaiah 66, 2. It's to be hoped in. It's to be trusted. It's to be made known. It's to be declared clearly. Colossians chapter 4, verse 4. It's to be heralded. It's to be unfolded. It's to be dwelling in us richly. It's to be our meditation. It's to be what fuels our worship what shapes our worship, what refines our worship. It's to be desired more than earthly treasures. The word of God, John 12, 48, is what will judge the wicked on the last day. 
It engenders faith in the human heart. Romans 10, 17. It's no empty word, but our very life. Deuteronomy 32, 47. It points us ultimately to Jesus Christ. It brings about fruit in the lives of those who cling to it. It's to be praised and it's to be celebrated. And Psalm 138, verse 2 says that it's regarded by God to be just as sacred as his name. May we be men and women who are absorbed in this greatest of all treasure. If you're hungry, it's bread. If you're thirsty, it's water. If you're sinking on slippery in, in, in mire, it's the rock that you can stand upon. All other ground is sinking sand. If you're in despair, discouraged, sinking in the slough of despond, it's able to rejoice your heart. If you're in a rut of sin, it's able to free you from that, liberate you from that. The truth, Jesus says, will set you free. And if the Son sets you free by that truth, you will be free indeed. Let us meditate upon it. Let us memorize it. Let it inform our prayer lives. Let it inform our praise. Let it cause our praise to be refined and to flare up. That's what we're created for, to know and enjoy the glory of God. And that can only happen when we are lo- our lives are lived uh, under the authority of his word.